science. Hope you are well uh, this Monday afternoon, uh, and uh, we are love and science. And uh, as I said before, but I'll say it again, I've got in the studio Andrew Glester, Lucy McGowan, Hannah Little, and Josh Warren, and I am Malcolm Love, as I was last time I checked. On today's show, what happened minutes and hours after the great asteroid strike that wiped out the dinosaurs? Could we create a dictionary for understanding the language of bees? How dogs have come to humans' age? once again and how an 18 year old Virginia high school student won $250,000 for figuring out how many exoplanets there are and where there might be at least these are exoplanets that we might have missed first time round when we were uh, looking for them and uh, Andrew great Hello. to have you in studio as always of yes. course well yes it's a great pleasure to be here Malcolm I always wondered whether you go home or whether you're always there I, sometimes I go home yeah, as yeah. you know sometimes I sit in my shed <laughs> And uh, occasionally I have been known to go uh, on a bus. But that's about it. Yes. Those are the three places (laughs) where you are. Lucy, lovely to have you back. You joined us a a few weeks uh, back. And uh, how are you? I'm very good, actually. Uh, Nice and relaxed after my holiday, but pretty jet lagged. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we're going to find out a little bit more about that in just just a moment or two. But Lucy, uh, you're a a pint of science person. I am. Before we go any further, I've got to ask you just to remind us what uh, pint of science is and where it's happening. So pint of science is a a global annual festival. So it's uh, taking place in May this year. It takes place in May every year. Um, and it's happening in Bristol um, and we've organised uh, I think 36 scientists to come into pubs near you in seven different pubs across Bristol so we've got pubs in Eastern, Bedminster in the city centre, in Clifton um, and between the 20th and 22nd of May you can get tickets to go into one of those pubs and listen to the scientists talk about all sorts of different disciplines um, and chat with them and find out more about their field. It's just the most civilised of things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, there's beer. <laughs> so, but it's fairly civilised for, for a pub, yes. <laughs> Very good. Josh, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Malcolm. Yeah, I had, a, I had a had a nice Mother's Day yesterday. I, I cooked for the entire family, about 12 oh. people. And are they still with us? They, they, yes, well... Oh, that's fantastic. We'll, we'll, I mean, that's a win all round. <laughs> yeah, we'll check when, we're, when I go home tonight. They may, they may not still be there. What did you cook? <laughs> I did a carbonara. Oh, nice. Ah. <laughs> no cream, though. D- definitely no cream in a carbonara. Not in a traditional carbonara. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's a traditional yeah. one. You're, yeah. you're an Italian purist, <laughs> are you? Of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, of course, if you did dinners for 13 people... I would have come round, but we know that's a dangerous thing to yeah, do. But we're, yeah, but we're not friends, though, Andrew, are we? Really? Are we? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of us as friends. I'm sorry that you don't. Well, you, you've you've, you've you got heard it first. Here. <laughs> <laughs> you've got no time for friends being on a being on a bus. <laughs> true, true. Not time for me, Mark, uh, Andrew. Yes, uh, it's going to be picked up by the tabloids. <laughs> you know, on the front page. Andrew and Josh. You know, <laughs> is there any way back? <laughs> Hannah, great to have you with us as always and how are you, how are you this fine day oh I'm, I'm i'm okay yeah 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 i know you're very excited about one of these um items about yes bees 
Um, I'm absolutely well. I just bees. Bee dance is one of my favourite to- um, subjects. Bees are the only animal that have um, a compositional language um, oh. apart from humans. Oh, mm. really? Yes. Ah. How? What do you mean? Well, maybe let's save this for later. Okay, <laughs> absolutely. Jump in the gun there. Yeah, sorry. Composition. So hang on for that. Yeah. I, I re- Do you know, when I was a kid, I was absolutely terrified of bees. I've told this story before, so it's very boring, but I haven't told it to you. It is that uh, when my, I was quite little, my sister was even littler, we were out in the garden, and this black cloud started moving very quickly towards us. And I became quite alarmed, dragged my sister. We ran into the shed, shut the door, just as it became coated with bees. Ooh. And they were, we could see them in the window and we were screaming and crying and everything. And my mum, very bravely, just came out, opened the door, <laughs> took us out into the house. And I was both fascinated from that minute and terrified of bees. But the fear has gone. I think they're really nice creatures. Yeah, something similar happened on my 21st birthday. A big <laughs> swarm of bees came. Um, but we rang the local beehive person and they came and got them. So they were just coming to celebrate because they knew how much you liked them. Absolutely. Is <laughs> that like the queen bee that you rang? Or was it... Who's the beehive person? I don't know. My mum knew them. Oh, OK. She knows everyone. <laughs> OK. Yeah. I do, do you know about bees? I was just sitting in the garden working on a lecture, no less, and uh, two bees connected to each other fell onto the to the laptop if i would assume that they were enjoying each other's company for uh, the purposes of making more bees mm-hmm. is that something they do out and about um so there's um i'm not a bee expert okay. in terms of their reproduction but i know that the majority no actually no i'm gonna i'm not gonna start well they all mate with the queen don't they they're all basically sterile apart from the ones that mate with the queen and the queen itself and then that makes them all siblings and that's why they work so well together because they're basically all very closely related i I think you'll find that all of the bees and ants and wasps that you see i believe all of them are female and then it's only the males that come out during a very limited few weeks of the year mm-hmm. and then they go and uh, find um, unmated queens and then that starts the colony from there but all the worker bees, all the worker ants mm-hmm. they're all female I believe mm-hmm. they, they, this, I had a kind of knowledge of this somewhere in my mind which made me think that this one, maybe they were wrestling or something, I, mean, I don't know what they were doing. anyway there were two bees or not that, two bees Yes, that was the question <laughs> no, there were definitely two bees that had somehow become entangled in each other and just dropped down onto my my laptop, almost as if you can imagine two wrestlers in a ring falling off and, and landing on the side and then and then breaking apart and flying off, although the wrestlers don't tend to fly. But I, I, I'm just kind of intrigued as to what the bees were doing. And if anyone knows, then uh, get in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, talking about flying, I want to come back to Lucy, because uh, not you yourself were flying, you were in a plane that was flying. Yeah. Um, and you went to Iceland on on Wow Air, on your way to Canada. So, yeah, I actually well, I went to Iceland with EasyJet and then I was going from Iceland to Toronto with Wow Air. So they do yeah. these, well, they did these really cheap deals. Yeah. Um, so everybody remembers what happened to Wow Air in the week. 
Well, you probably never heard of Wowair before yeah. this happened. I mean, I hadn't heard of them until I booked this flight. Um, everything's purple, like the plane, the air stewardesses, the chairs, <laughs> the tickets. The air stewardesses it's are purple. Every, well, you know, their right. uniforms. <laughs> Everything is bright purple. Um, and it's basically like a budget transatlantic airline, or rather it was. So they, they did super cheap tickets to... Uh, various places in North America, yeah. US, Canada, um, and yeah, it was great until until that seemed to not be sustainable anymore. And about four days after I flew out there, they went bust, um, mm. and all the planes have been impounded. And uh, but luckily, I was flying back with WestJet, so um. I got my holiday and got to fly back. Unlike some very unlucky people that were stranded in various parts of. So your friends Iceland. thought, "Oh no, she's stuck." Yes. <laughs> and you weren't. I got sent the article, Wow, has gone into um, liquidation yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got that article sent to me about seven times that morning, <laughs> and I was like, aha, well, don't yeah. you worry. I'm flying back with a different airline. Yeah. But all the purple is gone now. It's very sad. I would have yeah. recommended them otherwise. but Really sad. Well, difficult for people because um, I think we were talking earlier, it's not because Wow is dead cheap, so you lost, you know, it's, it's a bit of a pain to yeah. lose a cheap fl- a flight, but, you know, it's not the end of the world. The problem is... Wherever you are, yeah. you've got to get back. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to pay for that all by yeah. yourself. And if I'd been stuck in Iceland, if I hadn't been able to get my flight to Toronto, I probably would have just lost the rest of my holiday because I realistically wouldn't have been able to afford to yeah. get there. So I'd have yeah. just to have come back, which would be sad. But I'm one of the lucky ones. I was oh. one of the last people to fly with Wow Air. <laughs> Very good. Well, look, let's, um, let's talk uh, some science, shall we? Uh, because we've got a, a, a story all about um, exoplanets and so on. I mentioned at the top of the programme uh, all about a uh, high school s- uh, senior student. Um, uh, she's won a $250,000 prize for calculating the potential... Uh, for finding out more more planets outside our solar system. Um, the incredible Kepler telescope, whose mission ended in uh, 2018, discovered, I think, 2,600 confirmed exoplanets. That's planets outside our own solar system. But it's defunct now, isn't it, Andrew? It is, yeah. And uh, what did this girl do then? Well, oh, right. So she's called Anna Humphrey, and uh, she's a student at T.C. Williams High School in Virginia, and uh, she's 18 years old, and she's worked out a way of finding exoplanets that are hiding in the Kepler data. Right. I, I just wanted to say, £250,000, you'd have to work for quite a while as an astrophysicist to earn that. Yeah. And she's, done it when she's 18. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to put people off being an astrophysics, but, you know, if you don't get £250,000 a year, let's put it no. that way. Is the prize cash, though? Is it for her, or is it for more research? I, I don't know, actually. No, all, this, all the stories are saying it's two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I'm assuming it's a check. Yeah, yeah. it's wow. the Regeneron Science Talent Search. Yeah, the oldest science and math competition for high school seniors in the United States. Yeah. I don't know how many more recent ones there are, but this is the oldest. <laughs> and, uh, so, but what she's done is uh, using. So what Kepler does did was detect exoplanets by seeing how the light dipped as the planets passed in front of the star between us and the star. So when obviously when a planet goes in front of a star, the light from that star dips, and you can use the dip of the light uh, to work out at what size 
mass etc the planet yeah. what it's yeah. made of but what it can't do is find planets through any other means however there are uh, probably uh, other planets around the stars that they found an example that they give is kepler 186 i think yes which is a red dwarf star which kepler found five planets going around it four of them are very close to the star relatively speaking and one of them is really far out so you would expect that uh that would be quite an irregular way for planets to be in a in a in a solar system for them to be four really close up and then one really far away there's a lot of gap in between those right. uh, where you okay. could have so you'd, another. you might expect you might expect be something they, there yeah, yeah. exactly okay. and uh, what anna humphreys has done is um used maths really to look at the the that were not really entirely. She's used yeah, maths yeah. Um, to look at the the data that's there on the mass of the different planets that they have found, mm. and then put a planet, uh, sort of a hypothetical planet, in that space in between, mm. and then seen whether that's perturbed what the data that they've got there. And where it hasn't, then you can be fairly safe to assume that there is a planet of that size mm. there, uh, which is an, a, a wonderful piece of... Um, it is, isn't it? ...of, of maths for an 18-year-old to, to come up with. Yeah. And um, it's, it, it's going to be used not only for the data that uh, Kepler has done, but when the TESS telescope, which is uh, either going up soon or not, or, or in orbit soon and looking around looking at the same things looking for planetary um what am i thinking of uh what's transitory uh, exoplanets right yeah okay again it won't have the detail on these on these other ones that don't pass in front of the star or we don't get the data from them because of whatever maybe another they're in synchronous orbit with another uh planet which is bigger than it between us and it, if you see what I mean. So yes, it was a yeah. smaller planet behind it. We wouldn't see that as it went round. Um, and so this this system, this um, yeah, uh, that, that Anna's come up with, is going to be used for a lot of uh, find a lot of planets. See, my my analogy for this is if you like peanut butter, I do, and you get it all okay. out of the you get it out of the jar. Those jars are so designed. There's loads of peanut butter in there. You can't get it out very easily. Oh, yeah. So you need a smaller spoon or a different kind of spoon or a different technique to get in there, you see. Yeah. This is what's coming to me. This is <laughs> yeah. this is the image, the image that's being put into my brain. That's and this is what she's doing I with like her it. equations. I like it. There's a load more data in there, and she's managed to she's, winkle yeah. it out. Yeah. yeah she's found it. some real crunchy bits. I shall now. I'm going to patent this as the peanut butter <laughs> illusion. Yeah. I I think this is a really great story. I mean, yeah. c- coming from, uh, well, having my teacher head back on again. Yeah. Um, it's always been traditionally a struggle to get uh, young girls interested in physics and yeah. maths and the STEM subjects and I hadn't seen this story until uh, uh, you Malcolm uh, showed it to me on, on, on our, our Phyllis show yeah. um, but I think it's these sort of stories which really need to be put out there and really, to, really need to be at the forefront of trying to inspire people to get into yeah. physics and maths really so I think yeah. it's lovely Absolutely, it's it's great. Uh, we have to say there aren't that many um, 
prizes of that sort of size. <laughs> but, uh, what an achievement! It is, it is quite an achievement. I mean, she's she's uh, she's going to have to be hugely proud of that, and a big. Big congratulations to her. So it's Anna Humphrey. Um, there's another story um, which we'll pick up on uh, just before we go to some music, which is uh, this is another discovery, Andrew. I don't yes. know if you've, uh, it's about it's known as a super Jupiter, and it's it's because they're using special new techniques to find planets. Hmm. So they found this thing quite a while ago. Yes. But they've just found, got a new technique for finding out about the planet. Absolutely, yeah. So they're using something called um, interferometry, which means you combine telescopes in order to get uh, a larger aperture. So if you have a, a, a telescope in your back garden, imagine it was a 12-inch telescope, you'd be able to see a particular um, definite, uh, you know, gather more light than maybe an 18-inch one. But if you could combine it with an 18-inch one that was nearby, then you would get significantly larger than the sum of the two. And that's kind of the system that they use for uh, interferometry on these very large telescopes. In fact, one of the telescopes used is, in fact, called the Very Large Telescope. <laughs> and... <laughs> and uh, the VLT. But that's the one, yeah. 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 Uh, yes. and, um, they, uh, I really struggle to not say things I shouldn't say there. So I'm just <laughs> going to carry on. So um, <laughs> the, what they do is, um, is, is to combine these really big telescopes, and they've pointed at this, this uh, exoplanet, which is uh, HR8799E. But that's not the interesting thing about Very it. Very catchy. The interesting that's not the interesting thing. No, it's it. not. Oh, well. The interesting thing is that it's a, a super Jupiter which means it's a very big version of our Jupiter. And uh, what they've discovered is that it's got huge amounts of storm. I'm just going to read what uh, the scientist Lacour says about it, because it's quite lovely. Um, Our observations suggest a ball of gas illuminated from the interior with rays of warm light swirling through stormy patches of dark clouds. Convection moves around the clouds of silicate and iron particles which disagree disaggregate and rain down into the interior. This paints a picture of a dynamic atmosphere of a giant exoplanet at birth undergoing complex physical and chemical processes. So we've been able to point our telescopes using uh, interferometry at an exoplanet far out in space and see the way that its atmosphere is moving around and that is just all kinds of wonderful. That's absolutely marvellous. Well, thank you for telling us all about that. You're listening to uh, Love and Science on uh, BCFM 93.2 or bcfmradio.com. Uh, and uh, you can go to bcfmradio.com, look at shows, and you can listen to any uh, of our fabulous BCFM shows, including this rather marvellous edition of uh, Love and Science and all the, the back catalogue of the show. And um, I'm joined by um, Andrew, Lucy, Hannah and Josh to talk about science in the news and science behind the news. And we get to frogs. It's, it's been a bad time for frogs, actually amphibians in general. For many years, uh, it's been noticed that um, they are 
dying off. We're losing large numbers of them, and it's been a bit mysterious as to why that can happen. But we're very fortunate to have uh, Lucy McGowan in the studio because, Lucy, you know quite a lot about frogs and amphibians and... Your cane toad. <laughs> you said to us earlier, your cane toad lady. Yeah, yeah. T- t- tell us what you've been doing first before we get to the story. Oh, so um, before I was, so it's now I'm doing my PhD in in biomedical sciences. But actually, when I was at university doing my undergraduate degree, I spent some time as a zoologist before I went to the dark side and did kind of biomedical stuff. <laughs> so when I was doing uh, zoology, I went out to Costa Rica to do um, a research project with um, some of the professors from University of Manchester. And one of those professors uh, was Andrew Gray, who's a curator of the vivarium and herpetology department at Manchester Museum. And uh, he knows a lot. He's one of the, the, the best world experts for tropical yeah. frogs. And and we her- went out- herpetology is a study of like, amphibians. Yeah, amphibians. So, like, frogs yeah. and toads and yeah. things. Yeah. Okay. So if you've seen the collection in Manchester, he's the person that curated that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so we went out to Costa Rica as part of a field trip, as part of my undergraduate degree. And he was my supervisor there, so he was telling us about all of these problems with these tropical frogs, um, which has been in the news this week. So this isn't a new problem at all, but it's the kind of it's a it's a review of all of the papers that have come out over the last fifty years showing that this disease is very bad and the kind of right. where we're at now yeah. um, and bringing it to attention again. So, so, so this disease it's headed killer frog disease part of <laughs> it's a not killer frogs. and they're not killer frogs. Frogs with machine guns. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a frog that kills it's a disease that kills frogs. Yeah it's a disease. Uh, so uh, yeah what do we what uh, now how do we pronounce this yeah, disease? So this I is think it's chytridomycosis. Oh, or well chytridomycosis it's wow. one of the two that's um, impressive so it's <laughs> it's basically a fungus that grows on the skin of amphibians um, which is particularly bad because amphibians essentially breathe through their skin so if you cover that in a nasty fungus you basically suffocate them and it also kind of rots their flesh um, it's a really nasty fungus and um, it's been introduced into a lot of these tropical environments as a result of uh, humans importing plants and other animals and things like that so these poor little frogs that have been evolving in the rainforest in parts of South and Central America and so on, um, they've come across this fungus. It's the perfect conditions for it to grow because it needs a nice, damp, warm environment, and that's just what it's like in the rainforest. And these poor little frogs, because they've never seen it before, their immune system is just not familiar with it, so it completely ravages them. And uh, so far, this review has has said it's it's wiped out um, currently 90 species, and it's it's still attacking others as well, and it's now spread to over 60 countries, so it's a really big problem. Well, um, do you think we've found any way of dealing with it? Because it's, it's quite alarming. It's the same kind of thing, isn't it, that we've had with the bees, Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, is there any hope? I mean, is it just going to get worse? Well, I honestly don't know the answer to that at the moment. Um, one of the, the biggest things, um, one of the things that... Andrew, who I mentioned before, is doing. He's trying to gather collections of these frogs and preserve them. So there's a uh, in Costa Rica, for example, there's an amphibian research centre where they're basically trying to breed rare species of frogs. So at least there's a kind of reserve uh, that could be reintroduced if we manage to eliminate it. But for now, that's it, to my knowledge, that seems to be the only way of preventing this mass extinction. Is basically trying to bring some of them into captivity and breed them, get as many eggs as you can, um, and just keeping track of of where they are. But it's like I say, they just have no um, uh, defence against this fungus and it's the perfect conditions for it to grow so um, they're quite helpless actually it's really sad well 
we uh, are going to turn our attention away from uh, frogs to bees now. And um, one of uh, the friends of our show, somebody who's been on, on our show, Amy Ockenden, um, actually made a, a package as part of her uh, student work at the University of West of England. She, she made a package about bees. So before we get, we're going to get to bees and language in a minute or two, but this will kind of uh, set this up for us. Uh, she spoke to, uh, this is, uh, it was made, uh, I need to say, a little bit earlier in the year. So it wasn't sort of made this week, but it was made a few weeks ago. Uh, she spoke to a PhD uh, student who studies pollination, uh, someone called Tom uh, T- uh, Timberlake, who's studying at the University of Bristol. And uh, they walked around the uh, botanic gardens here in uh, Bristol. And the thing that they are interested in, both of them, is that um, it's not just pesticides that are affecting bees, but the amount of food that's uh, available for them. So uh, we join um, Amy uh, uh, walking around uh, the um, uh, gardens, the uh, botanic gardens in, in, in Bristol, with Tom, and uh, this is what happened. So we've been walking around the botanic gardens for quite a while and I can't seem to see much in flower. No, there, there really isn't much, is there? Um, and this is a botanic gardens, which is designed to have flowers all through the year. So if we went out into farmland at this time of year, we would find even less. There really isn't much out there. Um, you might have a few early willows out in flower, or a few winter celandines, but otherwise there's just nothing out there for the bees to feed on. Um, and with these warm winters that we've been having, they often come out much earlier than, than we're used to, so kind of even in, in January, I've seen a couple of bees buzzing around. And, and they really they don't have anything to feed on. They, don't, they need to be building up those um, resources to establish their colonies and start producing the next generation of, of bees. But without the pollen and nectar from the, from the flowers, they're, just, they can't, they're not able to do that. Well, suddenly we have come round the corner, and now I can see something that's very much in flower. It's something called Daphne Beloa, or the common name is Jacqueline Postil. And it's very, very pink and vibrant, and it's kind of star-like. It is. It's beautiful, isn't it? And you can, we could smell it coming, couldn't we? You could sort yeah. of get that rich, creamy smell of nectar. And that's, that's what the bee, that'll be drawing the bees in. They'll be smelling that nectar and seeing these bright flowers and probably flying in from quite a distance around because, as we've said earlier, we, we haven't seen much else, have we? It's, it's a kind of a beacon of colour in this otherwise very grey landscape, but there isn't really much out there. And this is why gardens are so important. They have these kind of exotic, bright shrubs that often provide a lot of rich pollen and nectar, especially early in the year. And in fact, you often find bumblebees flying in from kilometres around in farmland to visit these gardens within rural areas or in cities to try and find these resources. Um, and gardens may also have much better nesting sites as well, much more many crevices and sheds and walls that they can nestle into. So actually gardens are becoming almost like a haven for bees, which is not what we might think necessarily, is it? No, no, not at all, because I guess we think of the city as being not a great place for the pollinators and the countryside and the rural environments being better. Yeah, and I suppose that would have been the case a while back when there were lots more hay meadows around and farmland was managed much less intensively. But as, the, as we've intensified our farming in this country, 
and increased the size of our fields, increased our pesticide use. And at the same time, our cities have become more friendly towards wildlife. A lot of us are very aware now of what we can do to provide homes for wildlife. And a lot of people plant flowers and create nesting boxes for bees. And so you kind of, as one has got worse, the other has got better. And we now have the situation where you have bees actively seeking out the cities as a refuge. That was Tom Timberlake, a PhD student from the University of Bristol studying pollination ecology. I then went to speak to Professor Jane Mehmet, also at the University of Bristol, who gave us some tips on what we can do to attract pollinators to our gardens. What's really nice about working on pollinators is if you want to, say, save whales or tigers, that you can't actually personally do anything practical on your doorstep. But if you're interested in pollinators, and you've got to remember that everyone knows about the honeybee, but there's only only one honeybee, and it's not a native insect. But there's 24 species of bumblebee. There's about 270 species of solitary bee, which are all native. And then you've got all the hoverflies and butterflies and beetles. And you can do a huge amount in your own backyard. So whether you've got... You know, whether you've got a little back garden, whether you've got a big back garden, if you've just got a front doorstep, on your front doorstep, put a pot with lavender in it or some of the herbs. You can eat the herbs and when the herbs flower. So things like kind of mint and some of the thymes have got really attractive flowers mm-hmm. and pollinators. If you've got a balcony, put something on there and, and the whole city doing something in a joined up way can, you know, we can make a real difference. That was Jane Mehmet, Professor in Pollination Ecology at the University of Bristol. So for all you gardeners or bee enthusiasts wondering what you can do to prevent the decline of pollinators, just planting some of these early emerging flowers can really make a huge difference. And uh, you're listening to uh, Love and Science on BCFM 93.2. And uh, we we were talking about bees just before the uh, uh, music there, and... um, uh, we've got another bee story, which you, if you were listening at the top of the programme, uh, you, you would have heard, which is this. Do you think that we could have, uh, in sort of Doctor Doolittle style, a dictionary where we could kind of understand uh, uh, what bees were saying to us? And Hannah is very enthusiastic about this topic, so I don't know if she's going to agree that we could have a dictionary. <laughs> but what, what is this story all about? Oh, man, I'm so excited somebody's letting me talk about bees on the radio. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think we can do exactly that, and I'll tell you why. Because bee communication systems, I probably shouldn't use the word language, I'll get in trouble from the linguists, um, their communication system is very, very simple and very easy to decode. Um, so there's basically three things that a bee has any interest in communicating about, uh, and all of them have to do with food um, or flowers, uh, pollen, um, and they're interested in, in lots of different things about the, it, the, the flowers. Um, one of them is what direction are the flowers in, one of them is how far away are the flowers, uh, and then the other one, um, which this story doesn't actually mention, is how good are the flowers. Oh, um, yeah. So they do this by doing a little waggle dance it's called so they they waggle their little bee bums and um uh they do it within a specific angle in relationship to the sun and that tells you the direction uh, in which the flowers are um the duration of the dance tells you something about how far away the flowers are um and um the the how the the quality of the flowers is uh, communicated using the intensity of the dance wow. um <laughs> And what I've said at the top of the, the... So what I said at the top about this being the only um, kind of communication system that we know of within the animal world that is um, compositional, um, 
and humans being the other species, yeah. is um, is that each element of the dance is meaningful. So the angle is meaningful, the duration is meaningful, the intensity is meaningful, and those things all happen together. Um, so they're combined together in one long signal that tells you all of those different things. Um, wow. And other animals have kind of signals, but yeah. they usually only tell you kind of one thing yeah. um, at a time. But this brings to mind the idea of a sort of like a bee strictly come dancing. Oh, yeah, you know? that would be marvellous. I'd watch that. <laughs> saying, no, I, ju- I just think you could have put a bit more energy into this dance, you know, because we don't know enough about the quality of the food. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. That makes me think of the heptapods from uh, Arrival, mm-hmm. you know, with the different aspects of the language being communicated with oh, the symbols. Yeah. Is that, is that uh, as a linguist, is that a fair thing? Um, yes, but I would say that the heptapods were communicating a lot more. Yeah. Um, but you're right in... So I think that, yeah, so the um, the thing that would be similar is that they're doing it sort of all at once. So they produce this one very highly yeah. complex yeah. signal that um, communicates a lot yeah. um, in a non-linear fashion. So us as humans, when we put words together to make kind of sentences, we do it through time. So I said the cat um, was chased by the dog. Yeah. Um, so the cat and the dog are separate signals in that sentence and they're coming after each other temporally i'm not saying cat and dog together at the same time in the same way that the bee is both doing the dance in an angle and with the duration at the same time because you can't do the signal without the duration if that's the thing that's meaningful um so yeah i mean there yeah you're you're right there is there is a there is a Mm. connection so so something like bird song yeah wouldn't be compositional because it uh, flows through time, and you can only, and they only say one thing at once. But but even even birds have been known to have a conversation back and forth, haven't they? Uh, yes. So the thing, um, so different birds have different um, songs for different reasons. Mm. Um, but I would call bird song combinatorial as opposed to compositional. So they've got lots of different notes that they string together to make these songs. Um, and yeah, you're right that they do have this turn taking thing. But the thing that it lacks is. Um, a specific meaning that is linked to specific elements of that song in the way that the bee dance does. Right, um, okay. So each individual note isn't itself meaningful, but when you string them together, it is meaningful. Mm. Whether that might that might mean for birds, come and mate with me, or it might mean um, I found some food over there. Hmm. Depends on the bird species. And they have to be close to each other, don't they? so they all gather around a bee. The, 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 the bee is kind of signalling. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to be... So do we know anything about whether or not that's being uh, transmitted uh, further? Uh, you know, so other bees pick this up and then go and tell others. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So we go, you tell me, I tell my neighbour, and so on. Um, I... Th- I th- the, the, the answer is I think so, but I don't want to say a definite yes. Because yeah. I have a vague memory of them showing that, but I can't really remember what the finding was. Just connecting these two stories, it's really quite extraordinary. It says, uh, it says here, this is part of this story that you, you've been talking about, the US Department of Agriculture estimates that one out of every three bites of food in the United States depends on honeybees and other pollinators. Wow. That's quite extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? So, um, yeah. If the bees die, we're all screwed. Uh, yes, <laughs> we're, just, in, we're in a I, bad way. I just try and think about the bees with their, um, the, the intensity of the dance. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that that's, They're not thinking, well, I quite like it, so I'm going to dance. It's just because they're excited about it. Yeah, right? that's probably right. In the same way that, yeah, if I'm talking about 
a really great restaurant, yeah. I, I tend to get more enthusiastic than if if my meal was okay. It's yeah. probably uh, it's probably something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, and also that kind of aspect of the dance is a bit. Um, it's not as um, agreed amongst be experts that that is definitely part of the dance, which is probably why it's not in this new story. Okay, um, is it agreed among, among the bees? Do they all agree whether this is a particularly? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to go and ask them yeah, by dancing. Will. Yes, <laughs> we have to learn their language. <laughs> indeed, you are listening to Love and Science on BCFM. Indeed, you are, and uh, we've got time. Well, hopefully, for a couple of science stories before uh, we uh, wind up before. Uh, John Ford is getting uh, Bristol home, but we've um, we may just have the one, and, the, and it's a big one. The big one is, and I don't uh, know quite how to say this. I would say the 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 asteroid impact, but anyway, it's an asteroid that uh, struck the Earth 66 or thereabout, 65, 66 million years ago, uh, in what is now the uh, Yucatan in the sea, in the in the Yucatan, just off the Yucatan Peninsula, and uh, because it was really rather vast, I think it was 12 uh, kilometres across. Uh, it caused the most extraordinary uh, damage. And um, it's been attributed uh, by most people, really, though there's lots of discussion about it, to the uh, demise of the dinosaurs, or at least the big uh, dinosaurs. Um, it would have hurled billions of tonnes of molten and vaporised rock into the sky in all directions across thousands of uh, kilometres. And um, there is a place uh, called uh, Tanis uh, near uh, in the Gulf where, where, where this happened, um, where the fossils record the moment that this um, material fell back down to Earth. The weird thing about it is... Perhaps it's not that weird. I would imagine massive great rocks falling out of the sky. I'm sure that did happen quite near to the um, uh, to the impact. Um, but actually, all over the place, over a vast area, they were little glassy beads. And um, it was made up of all kinds of different sorts of material. So... Um, uh, they've been able to, uh, geo, they're called geochemists, people who study this kind of thing. They've um, uh, found uh, this, this material. Uh, fossils record the moment this uh, bead-sized material, bead material fell back down to uh, the earth. And it strafed like bullets, everything in its path. Fish have been found, uh, this is fossils of fish, with the impact-induced debris embedded in their gills. Yeah, so... Um after the impact, we we think that lots of rock and and debris got vaporised for the sheer heat and energy of the situation, and um, a lot of this uh, material, yeah, as as you say, rained down on 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 the seas and the and the, and, and and the land at the time, um, and the fish that you spoke of, the fossils that we found, we found these uh, beads, these little these little bits of debris. Um, uh, sort of embedded in their gills because they yeah. would have breathed it in yeah. uh, at, at the time. And there's the, the amber thing as well. Yeah. So, so this is what Jurassic Park, Park is yeah. based on, isn't it? The <laughs> idea that, you know, some, uh, a creature is... is, is uh, a mosquito is caught in amber and the mosquito's just been feeding off a dinosaur's blood. Yeah, and so then, in this case, yeah. um, in this case, we found some of these <clears throat> beads embedded in 
amber at the time, which is quite extraordinary, really. Yeah, it's cool. It is. It's cool. quite quite <laughs> incredible. Um, and the interesting thing is that so so they've basically calculated that this kind of glassy fallout would have happened. So they've looked at these beads, this debris, and they've dated it to sixty five point seven six million years ago, which is pretty close to uh, estimates earlier estimates. But it, it, assuming it does. Uh, connect directly where it is a result of the um, asteroid uh, collision then uh, we've got a, a definite date for the asteroid collision yeah nice. so yeah it's 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 further evidence to support it which is good I, yeah. I mean absolutely brilliant as well to be able to see what happened in the minutes and hours after the, the asteroid strike yeah 65 million years ago yeah i mean that's that is incredible that's science yeah. doing something yeah. really very extraordinary isn't to, it to misquote Jurassic Park, science finds a way. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it, it certainly does. Apparently, as well, um, uh, of course, there would have, there would have been the, this immediate effect to a, a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes after the uh, explosion. So all this stuff would have rained down. And then, uh, maybe hours later, several hours later, there would have been an astonishing tsunami because all over the world, there was a 10 or 11... Um, Great, uh, what do you what do you call it? Magnitude. Uh, thank you, magnitude <laughs> uh, earthquake uh, that would have rippled around the Earth. It's apparently a, a surge known as a seiche. Mm. So there you go, which would have picked up everything in its path and dumped it into the jumbled collection of specimens now being reported on by the uh, team that's studying this. So absolutely incredible! Congratulations to Robert De Palma and his uh, colleagues from the University of Kansas for telling us a little bit more about the world that we're living in well uh, we sadly don't have time for dogs oh. we always have time for dogs we always so. have time for dogs well <laughs> quick 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 don't say that to <laughs> hannah but uh, we've got um uh, we, we, we can we can have the story in next week because it's yeah. a, a bit of a timeless story that so it'll be it'll be uh, it'll be uh, great so um uh, it only uh, remains uh, for me to say uh, thank you very much for joining us and uh, a big thanks of course to uh, Andrew, Lucy, Hannah and Josh uh, for being on the show and uh, of course uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us and don't forget to uh, be with us again uh, next week. Uh, For now have yourself a very good evening and uh, take care. And science.